0: All right, let's pray. Father, thankful for this reminder in song that Christ is sufficient. There's nothing more that we need to do to add to His work. Um, it is enough. When when He uh, was getting ready to die on the cross, just before He died, He said, "It is finished." And there's uh, a lot of power and meaning packed into that into that sentence um, because we know that that His work was accomplished in paying for our sins and it was proven in His resurrection from the dead. We're thankful that He now intercedes in our behalf and that we can come to You through Him. We pray that today would be um, a refreshing time for us as we reflect on Your Word and also a time where we are challenged by Your truth and, and refined in our thinking. or we need Your Word today. So would You strengthen us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we start another section in the Old Testament. We begin um, a study on the minor prophets. So if you look at the table of contents in your Bible, you see where Isaiah is in the table of contents. Let's see if I can find mine here. If you have a table of contents broken up into sections and the first five books are going to be the books of Moses, then you'll have historical books and then poetic books. And then starting with Isaiah, you have the prophetic books. And those, that section, the book of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, is broken up into two smaller sections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets go from Isaiah to, um, to Ezekiel. And then the minor prophets go from Daniel to Malachi. Okay, so you, if you at least see the order of the books, you may not have all those headings there, but if you at least see the order there, from Daniel to Malachi, there's 12 books that make up the minor prophets. Now, does anyone know why we call them major prophets versus minor prophets? Is it similar to kind of how we have major leagues and minor leagues? You know, they have the better players. Okay, so the size of the book, right? So it's not really that these books are that the major prophets are better than the minor prophets. It's really just the length of the book. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Lamentations is not that long, but Ezekiel is certainly uh, a very long book, and Jeremiah is is actually um, right up there with Psalms as far as the longest. The minor prophets are shorter in nature, and um, so we're going to, to, to begin this week to look at a few of those Now, what you need to know about these 12 minor prophets is that they are not given to us chronologically. So you can't just start at the beginning and say, okay, if we want to think about Israel's history, we can just kind of work our way through from beginning to end. However, there is somewhat of a a structure. They they seem to be gathered more thematically. Um, But what we do know is that the first six of these minor prophets, so Hosea through Micah, are all set before the fall of the northern kingdom. So, we've been talking about that because Isaiah's prophecy had to do with that. And Isaiah's prophecy was uh, was talking about a time when the northern tribe of Israel was going to be exiled. Well, actually, they were going to be destroyed, 722 B.C. So, these first six minor prophets are set before that time. And then the next three, Nahum through Zephaniah, are set before the southern kingdom's fall. So, remember, the southern kingdom is Judah... Judah is not going to fall to 150 years after the northern kingdom of Israel. So, northern kingdom, 722, southern kingdom, 586. And so, these these books, Nahum through Zephaniah, are set kind of between those two falls of the two kingdoms. And then the final three books, Haggai um, through Malachi, are set after the southern kingdom returns from exile. So, we're talking about 536 B.C. So, there's somewhat of a... Chronology that's going on, but inside each of those groupings, six, three, and three, um, there's they're not exactly um in order chronologically. In fact, Obadiah most likely is the first of the Old Testament prophets. Alright, so just keep that in mind as, as you're looking. Today we're going to start with Hosea. So if you turn did I where are the handouts? Remember where I put those. Um You know what? I think I left those at home. Sorry about that. So you're just going to have to imagine just this really beautifully set up little four-page booklet with black letters and all of the organization that you need so that you understand how things are going. Just imagine that in your mind, okay? Um, So you'll never guess who wrote the book of Hosea. Hosea. You see that in verse 1? The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham. So we get an idea of when he served as a prophet, because of the time in which he reigned, or the time in which he he prophesied, uh, because of these other kings that he mentioned. So most likely he's um, writing around the time of 760, or prophesying around the time of 760 B.C. So he would be a contemporary of Isaiah, and he's prophesying uh, primarily to the northern kingdom, and the focus is that that israel is like an adulterous wife who has broken their covenant with god and and hosea wants the people to recognize this he wants to speak to them the truth about how they have betrayed their god and god is angry and ready to cast them off you remember in in the book of exodus how god called israel my people well here we're going to see in chapter one that he's ready to call them not my people and it's a sad prophecy that Hosea brings, but we'll see that it will, it, all this judgment and um, and sin is actually going to be um, mixed with grace. That is, that God's going to, to offer grace to those who will humble themselves. Um, well, as you're going through the prophets, one of the helpful ways that you can think about them is that there's often three parts to each of the... seems like there's three parts to each of the the prophecies. First, there's an indictment for sins. Okay, so the prophets are actually speaking to a specific sin that has been committed, right? Then secondly, a warning of judgment. And then thirdly, an offer of grace. So you'll be able to see that if you look through these prophets that way, um, that these prophets are, are often speaking on behalf of God. Sin, judgment, grace and the theme of this text is uh, of this book is that the people of Israel have broken their covenant like an adulterous wife even though God has loyally loved them as their husband. And so um one of the things that Hosea does and what many of the prophets do is they use everyday kind of analogies to help us to to see the reality of our sin and Hosea here is told by God to marry a, a harlot. And and then after he marries her, she commits adultery and Hosea is told to go back to her even though she's committed adultery. And, and this whole episode is meant to symbolize the relationship between God and Israel, that God has married a, har- a harlotess, say an adulterous wife in Israel, and even after he has chosen for them to be his people, they have betrayed him again. And yet, what does God do? He doesn't give up on them. He goes back to them like Hosea. There's really a powerful picture here um, of God's mercy and his commitment to his covenant. So, in Hosea 1 through 3, Hosea banks on two very powerful images to get his message across. The first image is one of marriage. The second is of adultery. So, Hosea is supposed to picture this man who is loyally faithful to his wife in the covenant of marriage. And, and this is supposed to remind us in chapters 4 through 14 that this is God, that He is loyally faithful to His people. And um, so let's see if we can uh, see this in the text. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children... Of of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So here's the reason why you need to do this, Hosea. Do it as a picture of what um, Israel has done to me. And so we read about Hosea's relationship with Gomer, his immoral wife, and what it says about Israel. That's all in chapters 1 through 3. But before we moved on to to see how God uh, uses this to express his commitment to his people, uh, I want to I point out something here. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. When, when they have kids, the Lord says, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. So, Lo-Ami just means not my son. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So, every time you say this little boy's name, you're going to be reminded, Hosea, that this is what it's like for me and Israel. He's ready to cast them off. And the point here is that God is saying, listen, I'm I'm done. And then, um, But look at the next verse in verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So here, even though God is ready to cast them off and deservedly so on the part of, uh, based on what they are doing, God says actually there's a promise that even though I'm ready to call you not my people, there's coming a day when I'm going to call you the sons of of the living God. And then look at verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Here Hosea is even prophesying that Israel and Judah will be reunited and that they'll have one ruler over them. And... um, course we all know when that's going to happen and who that one ruler is going to be Um, it's it's still to come so this book is really about god's unconditional love despite his people's betrayal and and reading through this book we have to acknowledge that the majority of the book focuses on the sin of israel and their wayward love for false gods But I I think the reason that there's so much focus on Israel's sin is because it highlights something special about God. And that is His unconditionality towards us, towards particularly Israel, but by by extension by us as well. That is His unconditional love. I've told the story before, um, actually when I was preaching through this, um, back in probably 2009, of how I met Jennifer and um when i first met her i thought she was sweet and but i didn't really think i had a chance to date her we kind of hung out together in a larger group and um it took me a long time to to work up the courage to to ask her and in fact our first time on a date was kind of a shock because we had been playing doubles tennis um my brother and i she and another and, and her roommate and um and on one occasion, I was planning to play. She was planning to play, but my brother couldn't make it. So I called her and told her, you know, my brother can't make it. And she said, well, actually, my roommate can't make it either. And uh, I said, well, do you still want to go? And that was kind of my, um, my first uh, attempt at, at, um, at making this thing a little bit more serious. And uh, she said, as long as you're there, Tiger, that's all that matters. No, that's, that that's true no that's not that's not true. Um, she agreed and um, and you know the more time that I spent with her, the more that I enjoyed her company and and over time I chose to love her um, and 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 there was an affection there that that was um, was not forced in any way. There's something about her that was lovable to me. And then the time came when I made a conscious decision never to love another as I loved her. And so I chose to love her as my wife to the exclusion of all other women on the planet. On the planet. And that was about 18 years ago. And to, and to this day, I can say that my love has deepened for her, that something that started as an attraction became a specific choice a loving choice that made sense. But I hope you understand that God did not come to love us in that same way. God did not come to love us in the same way that I came to love Jennifer. I mean, don't be mistaken. We are Gomer. We are a putrid, putrid, disgusting, miserable existence to look upon. God didn't look upon us and say, wow, that's really attractive. Maybe I need to get to know that person more. There's a lot of potential there. Maybe the more that I get to know them, the more that I will love them. No, His anger his anger was aroused at our sin, and we were His enemy. But God's love is an unconditional love. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet adulteress even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes see God's love is not based on what he had done or, or what we had done or what we would have done or what we will do it's based on his own choice and his mercy. God's love breaks through the barrier of our wretched sin. It reaches down into the darkest, dirtiest cave of vile humanity and picks out a worthless lump of coal that has no value, no attraction. And he says, I'll take this piece of garbage and turn it into something that's going to radiate for my glory so that all the earth will know that I am God. So he takes that dirty chunk of a rock and transforms it with the Word. And when people see the change from something that's useless To something that's valuable, something that resonates or radiates God's glory. They don't look at the diamond and say, wow, what a great job you did in changing, right? They look at God and say, what an amazing God. That He would take a people and turn them into what Peter calls a chosen race. He calls us this, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So as a diamond, we are made to radiate the beauty of our Creator. Not because we have inherent beauty. We were nothing. We deserve to be destroyed, discarded. God's love reached down to us while we were sinners, while we were enemies. And He does this in order to highlight his his greatness his great love in other words as we see the depth of our sin when we see ourselves like um gomer we recognize the great love of the husband right hosea who's continually willing to come back and display his love despite our our obstinacy not only was God's love unconditional when He chose you and saved you, but it also remained steadfast. So, from a human perspective, it didn't make sense that Hosea would ever go and marry a prostitute, but perhaps what is more shocking is that when she actually betrayed Him again by, by, um, by involving herself, by prostituting herself out, Hosea went back to her. In other words, he didn't abandon her you know what, you've shown yourself for who you are. You won't accept my love, so see you later. In the same way, God does not continue His love on us based on what we do. We, There's no sin that's too great for His grace. That's what we sing in this song of the month that we're learning now, come lonely heart. There's no sin that's great, too great for His grace. So that means... That, that there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God. When God sets His love on us to choose us, there's nothing that, that can draw us apart. In other words, our salvation does not depend upon us. It depends on God. He continues His love for you despite your, despite your sin because He's chosen to love you and nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, not life or death or angels or principalities, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature, can separate you from the love of God. Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine. So Gomer gives hope to sinners. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans five twenty. This is the great salvation that we enjoy. This picture of Hosea and Gomer of. God and Israel is a picture of of what our lives are like today. That God continually pursues us despite our sin. So this book is worthy of your study. It's worthy of your meditation. Take some time to think through this and and reflect on on what it means for your spiritual life and um, and allow it to well up within you. This greater desire and passion to, to love God. Not to go on, you know what, God's going to let me sin, then I'm just going to go sin. Not to do that, but to say, what an amazing God that He continually pursues me. And what an amazing God that all of my salvation is dependent upon His grace. I'm going to keep falling on Him for grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Any questions, comments? I, I
1: can't remember. Yeah. And just one time where I can say for sure that they uh, made me think because I think it's verse three they think God didn't tell him to do what he did. And chapter three.
0: Are you talking about one three or three three?
1: One, three I think it
0: is. <coughs> yeah, I, I'd have to. I have to look. I'm not sure exactly. Um,
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd be interested to to see that. But um, all right, chapters 1 through 3 really embody the rest of the book and um, Hosea's relationship with Gomer is left behind in chapters 1 through 3. To be exchanged for this relationship between God and Israel, and uh, so you have this—you have this picture of sin, judgment, mercy—in chapters one through three. You also see the same sort of pattern in chapters four through fourteen. So, would you turn to chapter eleven, and we'll um, try to wrap it up here so we can look at the video. Chapter eleven, verses eight and nine. Someone read those verses for us.
1: How can I give you up, O Ecream? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I teach you like Ziboreen? My heart is turned over within me, all my compassions are full. I will not execute my fear, favor, I will not destroy you for the So I am God and not man; the holy one in the earth, and I will not come Isn't this
0: amazing? This is God. He's got this torn kind of emotional, um, don't think emotional like bad, but this emotional state where he's trying to wrestle between what do I do with you? You know, I've chosen you to be my bride, effectively Israel, and, and I want to cast you off because of your sin, but how can I? How can I do this when I've set my love upon you? This is God to us as well. Psalm 103 says that, Um, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And aren't you thankful for that? That As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Just as the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And so we have this picture of the Gospel that, that really was the Gospel in the Old Testament that if you will just trust Me, come to Me, fall on Me, Trust in my promised Redeemer. You will have life and peace and grace. Um, so the first application for Hosea is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, for Hosea, they didn't know his name was Jesus Christ, but for us, we do. Their, their hope was to trust in the promised Redeemer. Um, the second application is drawn from chapter 5, verse 4, which is that that we need to see sin the way that God sees it. We need to see sin the way God sees it. In chapter 5, verse 4, their deeds will not allow them to return to God for a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. So disobeying the Lord is no minor inconsequential thing that we often pretend it is. It's what what uh, Hosea says here on behalf of God. He calls it harlotry. Their sin is is betraying their God. It's, setting God aside for another passion, another, uh, another person, another desire. And this is consistent with what James tells us in James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? And so he's calling our sin, our betrayal of God, adultery. Um, all right, any questions before we get to the video? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think I uh, was just thinking about that song again. Um, is it in this one? Great. Great is our sin. Oh, yeah, it's in the second verse of Christ is sufficient. So, on that song we were singing earlier, second verse Nothing remains since Jesus has died. Justice was paid, the judge satisfied. Great is my sin, but greater his love and I have been cleansed with Calvary's blood. All right, let's uh, take a look at the video.
1: So book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea was in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the stories in the first king. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of is Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos. And in the year 722, the big, bad Assyrian empire swoops in and decimated. but instead. He says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew the covenant. And he says, why? It's purely because of his own relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about morning. Hosea is an ancient... All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences that not God's final word. There's still coming. And that's what the last chapter is about. So Hosea called Israel to repent and turn back to their God. collected Hosea's poetry, and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and determined to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poem. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not lost in the past. It reveals deep truth about God's character, and purposes, and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about.
0: All right, let's turn to the next book of Joel, and we'll have to hustle through here. And uh, so we can watch the video. The author is uh, stated at the beginning, uh, Joel. Don't know exactly when he prophesied because he doesn't tell about any of the kings that he was prophesying during the time of, but probably one of the earlier prophets, maybe 835 BC, some scholars believe. His attention um, is not on the northern kingdom like Hosea's was, but on the southern kingdom of Judah. And what really makes Joel distinct is his focus on the end of the world and uh, so the theme of this book is that because God's wrath will be poured out in judgment on the coming day of the Lord then unbelievers must turn from their sin in order to experience the blessing that God has promised so this day of the Lord that uh, you read about in the book of Joel let me see if I can find where he talks about that Verse 15, chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Um, mentioned before, but just it's probably worthy to mention again that the day of the Lord is not a one 24-hour period, but rather a, a long period of time that starts with judgment and ends in blessing. Okay, Consistent with the Jewish day, which started at sunset and ended... Um, it ended at sunset. So it actually began with darkness and ends with light different than our calendar day. Uh, and so the day of the Lord is similar to that. You have this period of judgment that's going to come, the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon that follows, and then a um, period of blessing, the millennial kingdom and the eternal state to follow. So when, when you hear... Any of the Old Testament writers using the precise phrase, the day of the Lord, it's always referring to that end time period of mostly they're focusing on judgment, but it also includes a time of blessing. Um, so let's, let's see how uh, Joel uses these historical symbols um, to prefigure the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has invaded my land. Mighty and without number, its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So here, Joel is picturing a time in the near future when there's going to be great destruction on the land. So, one locust doesn't eat, another locust is going to come and take over. The the time period of of joy and blessing, pictured in drinking wine, is all going to be replaced by terror and destruction if they don't repent. And so, um, I just read verse 15 earlier and it seems to be pointing to a time not just in the near future for for Joel but also to the eschatological the end times future when God's going to um, bring on a greater time of judgment in other words these smaller judgments that are coming on you Judah are pictures of what God's going to do in the end so repent now because there's coming a greater judgment that's going to be even worse look at chapter 10 or ch- chapter two excuse me Chapter 2, verse 10. Before them the earth quakes, the heaven trembles, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Awesome in the sense of awe. awe um, it's, it, it, it gives us this sense of um, reverence and, and fear. That, that sense of awesome, not like, oh, this can be awesome. Um, for the blessing part of it, certainly will be. But, but here Joel's pointing now not to a, a near future of a mini day of the Lord, so to speak, but, but to the ultimate day of the Lord. It's going to be an ugly day uh, for those who have not repented. But there is hope. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. So don't just make this an external thing, it's not about your rituals. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So again, you see this picture of Judah's sin, God's promised judgment. But also, this period of grace where he's saying, I'm I'm offering to you grace if you will just repent. It's not about tearing your garments, you know, like they would do when they're a time of mourning to show on the outside that you're all sad, but, but really, it's rending your hearts. It's actually genuine repentance. It's turning back to God. That's what repentance is, right? It's turning away from sin and it's turning to God. And. This is the same message that we have in the New Testament, right? That, that because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment, His ultimate and final judgment. And yet God offers for us grace if we will repent. We just turn turn from our sins and God will, will spare us. Um, Alright, well, there's a lot more we could say there. Um, let me just see if, This book, as we look through it, just a couple chapters long, is a book that ought to remind us that there is a day of reckoning coming. You know, I'm, I'm often remember, reminded of First Peter 3 where the people say, you know, there's nothing's changed, everything's always the same, and uh, God's, God hasn't judged me now, He's not going to judge me then. I'm not really afraid of a coming judgment. That's what unbelievers are constantly thinking, but... But Peter says, you know what? There has been a judgment that God has brought on the earth, and it was worldwide and catastrophic. It was the flood. So don't say that the world has always been like it was. Don't say that God is is um, kind of uh, indifferent to the sin that we're committing. No, God knows about it, and He's storing up His wrath. The, the wheels of God's wrath are turning, even though they turn ever so slowly. They are turning, and eventually they will reach to the point where... Uh, that, that his wrath will have to be will have to be poured out on those who who reject him. God's wrath will come, so we need to recognize that. Joel helps to remind us of that. But the good news is that God provides grace. That for us in Jesus Christ, Jesus has absorbed the wrath that we deserve, and so our responsibility is to repent, to to rend our hearts and not our garments. And this happens through the power of the Holy Spirit um, as a way to bring about the glory of God. All right, let's take a look at the video and then see if you have any questions.
1: The book of the Prophet's book is a short collection of prophetic poems that are both powerful and